All right, welcome back, everybody. Hour number two is here. And, of course, you know who I am and what I do if you listen to the program. So we'll just crank it up and not worry about going through all that stuff again. All right, second hour, we want to talk. We want to continue talking about China because I, I agree with a lot of people that are beginning to express the concern that we've ignored China for, for too long. And now we're going to have to move quickly to keep China from pushing the United States off of the world stage. Now, you may say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a big difference when it comes to the fact that the United States is a beacon of freedom. And I get it. We've we've got a lot of problems with our freedom right now because of a progressive bunch of people in this country that would be more, have more in common with China than they do with Americans. But we're still, at this moment, uh, the beacon of freedom to the rest of the world. And the fact that I'm doing this radio show and can say those things is an indicator of that. So, you know, we, we need to be concerned about what China is up to. One of the things that they're up to is helping Russia to not lose the war with Ukraine. Now, the main, the main thing is China could care less about Ukraine. I mean, people that are talking to the Chinese, I, I saw, um, I think it was Secretary of State Blinken saying that if, if China began to give weapons to Russia, that it would, it would lead to genocide in Ukraine, that cities would be destroyed, civilians would be killed, as if the Chinese could care less about who it kills in Ukraine. It doesn't. The Chinese government, the Chicoms, don't have the same kind of compassion for people that the United States has. I mean, our government is dysfunctional, but at least when they step onto the stage, the international stage, they genuinely don't want to see innocent people killed. They don't want to see countries steamrolled, or we don't want to see countries steamrolled by major powers that are going to enslave people. I mean, we, we care about things like that. The Chinese do not. And that, in war, it actually is an advantage to the people that don't care. Because if you're going to war and you're having to be careful about making sure that you're, you're not hurting innocent people, then that's, that's an, an attention that has to be paid that the Chinese don't have the luxury of doing. They, can, they don't care if they have to kill their own people. They'll do whatever's necessary as long as they can keep the unrest down in order to win a battle or gain better geopolitical positioning for them in the future. So this is this is a piece at National Review today, and it, it's coming from the editors. So they've sat down at National Review and kind of looked at China and, and the, the war in Ukraine and what's likely next for the Chinese, which they believe it's going to be to give weapons to Russia to help them in their quest to crush Ukraine. Um, and, and they're writing, they're saying Russia's war with Ukraine has been a double win for Beijing. Thanks to sanctions, Russia's trade with the West has fallen sharply, but it's been able to turn to China for the goods, ranging from cars to electronics, required to keep its consumers content and its industrial base supplied. More important still, in China, Russia has a reliable customer that will be willing to buy increasing amounts of oil, gas, and other raw, raw materials that it can no longer sell to the West. 
Russia's new pipelines will be heading toward China, not Europe. Its economy's doing fine, at least for now. And China's a big part of that. So, in essence, the war in Ukraine is pushing China and Russia into a closer partnership. And that's a bad thing for the West. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a good thing that uh, Russia is expending resources in Ukraine, that their military is being depleted. But at the end of the day, the Chinese are going to be the ones that prop up the Russian economy through the sanctions, and they're going to be the one that keeps Russia on the field and in some type of position to actually win this war. For its part, China's not only found an expanded market for its products in Russia, but critically now has a captive supplier for oil, natural gas, and other raw materials, and one with which it shares a long land border. Given the weight that China, which is rapidly shifting to uh, a, a, a new economic model that's much more heavy-handed toward the communist side than the free market side, attaches to security of supply for those resources it does not already have within its borders, this counts as a major win. Now again, why? Because it's much easier to secure supply lines when you have a shared border. And Russia and China has a long shared border that others really can't interfere with unless they want to get into a shooting war. I mean, you, you, it's kind of hard to keep Russia from shipping stuff to China when all Russia has to do is transport that stuff across a shared border. Same thing with China. They can get uh, weapons. They can get anything they need, people, materials, into Russia rather easily because of that shared border. So when it comes to the combatants, Beijing's peace plan, now, you know, they've stepped up and all of a sudden China's got a peace plan for Russia and Ukraine. At the same time that China is propping up Russia and soon, I believe, is going to be supplying Russia with sophisticated weapons to advance its war in Ukraine, they're touting this peace plan, which actually has no chance. Everybody's saying we're going to listen. But what this does is give China credibility on the world stage. I mean, suppose for a moment that the the Russians and Ukrainians accepted a Chinese peace plan. Well, you, I guarantee you any plan the Chinese are putting forward, in fact, when you look at their peace plan, it is a boon for Russia and it is a bust for Ukraine. And so, but, but China gets to be the world player by stepping onto the diplomatic stage and saying, look, we're the ones, we've got the ideas, we're going to rid the world of war. And then China's going to be rewarded by people looking to China more as the leader of the world as opposed to the United States. So it's a diplomatic win, it's a PR win, and in the end, China gets a, an ally in Russia that is also a customer that can, can, can keep pouring money into China as they build up their military for their ultimate confrontation with the United States and the West. China has ample ability to sell or even give material to Russia. China's production cap capacity of ground weapons exceeds that of NATO's. Now think about that. Let that sink in for a second. China's capacity for ground weapons. Now we're not talking about 
nuclear submarines. We're not talking about the Air Force or the Navy, but we're just talking about, you know, bazookas and tanks and armored personnel carriers, things like that, that every battle has to have to move troops into place if they're going to have a chance to win. China can outproduce all of NATO put together. Now, if the United States decides to convert to a war footing, where, like we did in World War II, where we began to have companies like Ford Motor Company, GM, they stop making so many cars and they start making military vehicles, we could catch up rather quickly. But right now, China's burying the West with its capability of making ground weaponry. The U.S. can complain all it wants, but it won't find it easy to devise sanctions that it could wield that would have any effect without hurting the U.S. too. If it could, that wouldn't bother Beijing too much. The Chinese economy is now managed on the principle that the economic is subordinated to the political. So accepting some knocks goes with that territory. The most effective sanctions might be to put decarbonization, a process that will leave the West dangerously dependent on China, for far longer than its politicians are prepared to admit, on whole. But that's not going to happen because we've got a left-wing progressive president run by a bunch of left-wing progressives who are propping him up just so he's the front man for all of their climate change propaganda. And when we're talking about decarbonization, we're talking about changing the amount of carbon into the atmosphere. That benefits China. They don't care how much carbon they're putting in the atmosphere. They'll, they'll come and sign a treaty all day long that they're going to they're gonna reduce the amount of carbon emissions. They're not going to do any such thing. But it entices the West to be dumb enough to reduce their carbon footprint at a time when we need to be building up our ability to face the Chinese threat. We're worried about cow flatulence and, you know, what, what cows are doing to the to the environment by taking up so much space rather than understanding that the Chinese are never going to care about that and they're going to continue to produce in a way that's a threat to the United States. Okay, we're talking uh, we're talking about China and we're talking about the influences that China has. We're probably not going to get to everything that China is doing today, but we're trying to cover as much of it as possible. Here's let, let me wrap up this by the editors of National Review. The only positive to come from a more lethal um, uh, Russian alignment with China would be that it would put an end once and for all to the pretense that we can, we can be partners with China in some areas and rivals in others. We cannot. And behaving as if we can is more dangerous than a straightforward recognition of a new Cold War. Now, accepting that may be unpleasant, but it's a starting point for navigating our way through it realistically, prudently, and without beguiling illusion. I agree with all of that. I, I don't want to have a Cold War with another communist superpower. Um, I mean, I, you know, I remember the days when we were constantly being concerned about some type of nuclear attack. But it's a better reality than trying to imagine that we're going to continue to get China to behave like a democracy by giving them all of our secrets, giving them, uh, uh, lending them a lot of our economic strength, and driving them into alliances that are strengthening them over time as our enemies. I mean, think about who China is in line with already. 
Russia, Iran, North Korea. I mean, you these are beginning to be, this is beginning to be a new axis of evil or axis power that the United States sooner or later is going to have to deal with. Um, all right, let's move on and talk about the infiltration of China into America's political system. This is a piece at Daily Signal by Neil Patel. The American media has been liberal for decades, but the utter disregard for the truth that pervades much of reporting today is something new. With all the alarm over misinformation on the right, little attention has been paid to the much broader form of misinformation that dominant corporate media uh, perpetuates today. One of the biggest stories of our time is the way communist China has co-opted so many leading American institutions and individuals. How is it that America, a country committed to human rights, is freely trading with China, a country currently operating slave labor camps? That's a serious and important question, but it's one the media barely addresses. Many well-intentioned Americans believe that free trade would liberalize China. We talked about that. It's not working. And provide low-cost goods, ultimately helping American families. In reality, free trade fuel communist China's rise minus the promise of liberalization. Moreover, these policies left America overly dependent on Chinese-made goods, including key products needed for America's security, its health care, even astound in an astounding way, its military. There are things that we get from China for the U.S. military, for Pete's sake. I mean, how long do you think it would take the Chinese government to cut off those sources if open conflict began? I mean, you let China invade Taiwan, and there's, a, there's an immediate lockdown between the United States and China, what that means for the American consumer, what it means for American businesses, I mean, we have gotten into bed with a monster, and we've basically allowed that to go on for years. And to extract ourselves, we're not going to be able to just walk away because there's a symbiotic relationship now. More broadly, the loss of American manufacturing has harmed many formerly thriving American co communities and helped upend the American political system. It turns out that free trade theory may not work out when one party is a developed free economy and the other is a mercantilist system marked by corruption and slave labor. In addition to the American leaders who botched these policies through well-meaning intentions, there are others who were economically or politically conflicted. Many American companies made billions by moving factories to China. Wall Street made even more by financing the whole thing. I mean, think about this. When a company like Ford decides they're going to build cars in China, they've got to get financing from somewhere. That's going to come from Wall Street banks. They're going to prosper at the same time while we're undermining the United States' position in the world by building up the Chinese. Some American companies and elite institutions were flat-out co-opted by Chinese interests. The Chinese Communist Party has an organized effort to influence American policymakers and business leaders. Most Americans don't even know that they're being targeted by Communist Party operatives. They're drawn in by the potential for financial gain or by a desire to bring the two countries closer together. Yeah, see, this is, we just want to be, get along. We just want to be friends. You know, this, this, this is kind of like the sheep or the antelope 
trying to negotiate water rights in the Serengeti with a lion. Okay, those that that's probably going to go to the lion. Advantage lion. And I mean, if, if the closer you get, you know, what is the the antelope or the um, the 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 zebra, whatever their advantage over the lion is instincts and mobility. I mean, they're they they've got to be able to get away. And the closer they get, the less that is likely to happen. The advantage goes to the lion. The closer we get to China, the closer we get to the dragon, Beijing, the less time we have to get away. The, the, I mean, w- when they decide on their timetable to pounce. The Daily Courier's News Foundation's Philip Lenzicki is one of the leading American reporters covering the Chinese Communist Party's influence operations in the United States. With with his 20 years of experience traveling frequently in China, <coughs> excuse me, six years living in China full-time, fluency in, in Mandarin, a master's degree in Chinese language and culture, and sources all over the country. Plus, being the top student at Harvard's Beijing Academy, it's hard to point to a more well-equipped reporter elsewhere in American media. He recently made two astounding discoveries that he detailed in a series of articles. First, he revealed how Representative Judy Xu, Democrat of California, served for over a decade as the honorary president of an organization whose leadership includes several individuals who belong to alleged Chinese intelligence front groups. And this is Lenzicki revealed that Xu was named honorary chairwoman of an alleged Chinese intelligence front group back in 2018. Uh, excuse me, 2019. Second, Lenzicki exposed how Dominique Ng, CEO of East West Bank of the East West Bank, recently appointed by President Joe Biden to represent the U.S. at the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation meetings had been a member of at least two groups allegedly linked to Chinese Communist Party intelligence efforts. Now, both of these people, the representative and the appointee, the appointee um, by Biden, are, are, are denying this. They're saying, look, this is innocuous. We're, we're not actually associated at all with ti- Chinese intelligence. Well, of course they're going to say that. Of course. Because to say anything different would indict them as being as working actively with the Chinese government to undermine U.S. interest. They're going to say that those organizations long ago abandoned their clandestine efforts, that this is all up front, it's all transparent, and that's exactly what the Chinese government wants them to say because that's what they want them, want them to think. Lenzweki's reporting is well documented. More importantly, it's on the web for anybody to analyze. Any reporter who felt the need to further substantiate it could go to his articles, find links to the source materials, and experts who commented and do all the necessary substantiation, but not a single corporate media reporter did. That's because they don't want to get to the truth. And this is a serious problem when it comes to China. They don't like where it may lead. It's much cleaner to call it unsubstantiated or racist and write it off. This is the same way reporters handle the Hunter Biden laptop story, the story of whether COVID-19 came from a lab in China. And see, this is, why do we not want to talk about that? Let's get back to that for a second. All of the evidence now points to COVID-19 escaping this lab in Wuhan. 
what, who are we protecting? Well, we're protecting Anthony Fauci and the and and, and the NIH because they funded gain of 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 uh, function research that could have led to the creation of COVID nineteen, and we're protecting China because we don't want the rest of the world to be focused on China. China doesn't want the the curtain pulled back to reveal that they're the source of COVID nineteen. All of this plays into the hands of the Chinese. It advances their agenda, it minimizes Western influence, and it causes Beijing to start to be the center of the universe. And we have got to begin to act like we understand this as a country. I think a lot of conservatives are beginning to come around. I think conservatives that used to have a pie-in-the-sky attitude toward China. Oh, they're our friends. They're going to be able to, we're going to be able to change their mind about their tyranny because uh, their people are going to want freedom. Well, it doesn't matter what their people want. The Chinese government is large and in charge. They keep a thumb on their people. And the Chinese government is perfectly willing to continue to grow at the expense of the United States. It's making alliances in Africa. And, and I'll tell you where, these, where, where the African alliances are going to come home to roost for the U.S. It's the mineral deposits that are in Africa. China's targeting countries. They don't, they don't give a rip about the country. They don't care if they can help a country to benefit that country. What they're after are the mineral rights that will keep Chinese uh, minerals flowing, keep their artificial intelligence program growing, and their military growing, um, their economy growing, that's what they're concerned about. You know, because of the population bomb in China, you know, for a long time, they they had the uh, one-child policy, and now they've actually reached the point where they don't have a replacement birth rate. In China, in fact, it's way below replacement, and it's causing a lot of concern among the Chinese government leaders. But all of this that could be a sign of weakening of China is being replaced by the aggressive nature of China forging these relationships with countries that they need. The Ukraine-Russian war that's driving Russia into the arms of China to to bolster their economy and to set up a two-way street so that Russia and China become a a force to be reckoned with, and then behind them you have Iran and North Korea. So all of this should make us, as Americans, uncomfortable but aware. Not uncomfortable to where we don't do anything, we're paralyzed, but we're uncomfortable to the point that we stop pretending China is a friend. They're not. They're our enemy. They have world domination as a goal, and we need to start behaving as if that's true before it's too late. Uh, we have a special guest in the studio today, Valerie Brunken. She's a good friend of the program and just a good friend in general. And she's here to talk about the pink and blue gala that's coming up Saturday, March 25th. Now, that's going to be a week from this Saturday. You know, we Palmetto Family has the, the big event down in Charleston this Saturday, Vision 2024. And then the next Saturday is the Pink and Blue Gala. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Tony. Uh, I appreciate it's always it. a pleasure. We're glad to have you on the program. So tell us about the Pink and Blue Gala. Who is it going to benefit, and uh, why are you excited about it? Um, yeah, well, I am the executive director for um, a maternity home, St. Right. Clair's Home. 
and this um, gala will benefit St. Clair's Home and their operating expenses. Um, as you can imagine, having a 24-7 operation to try and help these moms in various ways, um, you know, costs a good bit of money. So we're um, raising our operating expenses for that. And um, I am very excited because we are having our guest speaker is um, Melissa Oden who is a survivor of a saline abortion. And Melissa's story, you might think, sounds horrible, but it's actually a wonderful story of hope. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm very excited for her to be able to um, share her her life experiences and um, and inspire the, the people that are coming to the gala. Now, St. Clair's home, it, it, women come there when they are being pressured, right, to have an abortion, or they come um, at, as they, because they're, they're having their baby and they find support there is it, when they're not finding it other places. Well, that's correct, Tony. Um, as you know, we, we are trying to help women in various ways, but um, in some circumstances, we find that there are women who have chosen to have their babies mm -hmm. that are homeless, um, right. with no place to go, no one to support them, living in their cars, living in the woods. It, it's actually really crazy what goes on in our society and how we're not supporting women. So that is the mission of St. Clair's is to um, provide a place for these moms to come. And what we do at the home is we give them, um, well, we give them shelter, of course, but we also try and either help them get educated or go further in their job to be able to save up some money. That is a requirement that they either go to school or work, but mostly we provide an environment where they can have a safe, healthy birth for their baby. And um, so we're able to welcome those babies in into the world. Um, we have chores for the moms. They have to do household chores. Um, they have to cook one night a week for the rest of the house. Um, we teach them fun things like sewing, and but also have financial classes for them, um, parenting classes, those type of things, just to get them on their feet and ready to be able to support themselves and their families. How many women on, on average? I mean, I know the number probably fluctuates, but how many do you normally have? Um, on average, there's five or six women in there. Um, mm -hmm. Right now we're at five. We just had two moms just leave um, finding housing, and um, we're able to So, So your goal, them. obviously, is not for them to be there long term. Your goal is to be a, a stopgap, a help for them as they sort of transition and find a job, find a home, and get settled. You know, if, if I think pro-life advocates are, are going to have to focus more on things like this in a post-Roe world because we, we've, we've got to demonstrate to a skeptical world that we are genuinely concerned about the women who are involved, uh, who get pregnant. And we've got to find ways to reduce the amount of homelessness, the amount of poverty, the amount of a lack of support system for women so that they don't feel like that abortion is their only choice. Now, I don't mean to suggest that it should ever be the only choice. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that women can be, they can get into that mindset 
because of their circumstances. And the more that we're able to alleviate that, the more babies we're going to be able to save. That's absolutely right, Tony. So, yeah, women um, in desperate situations do desperate things. Right. And um, so we want to be able to provide a place where they know that they can come, they're safe, they're not being judged, um, and they're being helped. Right. Let me, let me, let's get into politics for just a second. Okay. Um, I just want to get your response. You know, we've, we've been working really hard down in Columbia trying to get the Senate and the House to agree on passing pro-life legislation, and we just haven't been able to do it. So here we are in South Carolina. Uh, Roe versus Wade is overturned back in, what, June of last year. We're coming up, we're inching closer to that being a year since that's been handed back to the states. And we're, we're no better off here in South Carolina than we were. In fact, we're worse off because we have women coming here from the southeast because South Carolina has a 20-week law and they can get an abortion here. So we're becoming a destination state. Um, how, how, do, how do you respond to that? I, I don't know how to respond to it, and I'm down there trying to, to get these two sides to figure out. And, and when I talk about two sides, we're talking about Republicans. We're not talking about Republicans and Democrats. Democrats are never going to vote for any kind of pro-life, uh, any kind of abortion restriction. But we can't get Republicans to agree on what that restriction is going to be. Um, I would say I am very disappointed. In fact, I am going to be calling my senator today because of a response that he had in not wanting to support the Human Life Protection Act, which I think would be wonderful. Um, You're absolutely right. I actually go and I do sidewalk counseling down at the abortion mill. And this Saturday, there were 52 cars that went into the abortion mill on a Saturday. That's just one day. And over half of them were from out of state. And so, yeah, that blood is on us. It is. And um, Well, we're going to have a press conference tomorrow down in Columbia. I'm going to be there. Are you coming? (laughs) I am. Good. Well, I'll be there. Um, In fact, I've been asked to to pray uh, to open it up and I'm going to be there for that, and we hope a lot of women will come. It's primarily aimed at women, to get women to come to Columbia to basically um, respond to the impasse and let our legislators know that this that women want this as well. They want life to be protected in the womb. It's not a thing where women are – there are a lot of women in South Carolina that want um, the Human Life Protection Act. Uh, it's not a a, a, a a thing where all women want to have wide open abortions like essentially we're having now in South Carolina. So I'm hoping that that's going to have an impact on our senators. I don't know, Valerie. I, I'm I, I'll be honest. I'm I, I try to be optimistic about most things, and as a believer, um, as I know you are a believer as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we put our faith and our trust in in Christ and. We believe that God is in control, something that Twyla Paris sings about every time this show opens. But in the world that we live in, um, sometimes it's hard for us to hold on to those things. At least, let me say this way, hard for me. I have to focus on that more and more when I see the failure of what I think should be an easy thing. To me, it should take 10 minutes to get this done in a red state with Republican majorities that we have 
and we can't pass a pro-life bill that, that's astounding. Well, it did pass in the House, yeah, and so right. we have we um, thank you to all of our House members because it was an overwhelming majority, and so the senators well, are the ones that we need to be calling. And the Senate says because they passed a revised version of the heartbeat bill that they don't have any reason to pass this bill, and that's where the impasse is. But um, hopefully uh, they'll hear women at this press conference tomorrow and it'll start the process where they start to rethink how important it is for us to protect life. Pink and Blue Gala. It's Saturday, March 25th. Tell us again who's speaking and where to get tickets and all of that. Okay. So, um, yes, it's uh, our guest is Melissa Oden, and you can purchase your tickets um, at our website, which is www.stclaireshomesc.org. And um, you can go to the website. I think it's on the donate page. And you can um, purchase your tickets there. If you have any problems, there's a contact number. Um, And so we would love to see you. Or if you cannot make it, um, a donation would be greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Valerie, thanks for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow down in Columbia. Okay, great. We've been talking about China today. And a lot of the news has been not great. Um, the maybe a little bit of a light of, of good news is that the United States, more and more people in the United States are beginning to realize that uh, it's just not possible for us to, to have some kind of strong alliance or partnership with China, uh, that their goals are domination and that we're, we're kind of, you know, feeding the cat that's going to eventually eat the canary. So, One of the good pieces of good news is that there are Republican governors that are starting to fight back against Chinese communist U.S. land grabs. You know, we've we've talked about this on the program several times that uh, China is buying up land in the United States. If you watch Fox News at all over the weekend, you saw them talking about the number, the the acreage that China is beginning to control. It's between 300 and 350,000, I think now, acres uh, that. China controls in the United States, and we're talking about farmland. We're talking about the potential of China being able to buy up enough land now, you know, to actually impact the United States' ability to feed itself and the rest of the world, ultimately. Now, we're not there yet. I, I don't want, you know, 350,000 acres in a country the size of the United States and a country that has so many acres available for food production is certainly not a threat at the moment. But what we need to understand is that the philosophy, they're starting this, they're pursuing it aggressively, and it won't take long for the number of acres to add up unless something's done about it. Well, according to Jeff Zimri at a piece at National Review that was posted yesterday, Republican governors, including Kristi Noem of South Dakota, are coming out strong against the Chinese Communist Party and its attempts to buy land in the United States. Appearing on Fox News Sunday's Morning Futures, the governor explained that she's being proactive in preventing the Chinese government from buying up valuable farmland in South Dakota. And the, again, South Dakota is a strategic state when it comes to the growing of food. According to Nome, after the Chinese spy balloon debacle and the White House inaction, South Dakota has had to be very aggressive. They're purchasing our land so they can have a 
foothold right here in the center of the United States of America to conduct surveillance on our defense systems and to take up land that would be, and this is me adding onto what she said, she stopped with talking about the defense systems, but, but I'm telling you part of the strategy is to take up land that could be used for food production. Uh, it's very strange, she says, for South Dakota to have to be this aggressive, but when you have a lack of leadership in the White House, we have to do what we can to protect our people. Now, obviously, um, she's using this as a political tool as well. Her name has been talked about as maybe being in the hat for president in 2024. I don't honestly don't think she's going to run. Um, I think she would have been doing more uh, to get ready if that were the case. But it's still a possibility. Uh, she pointed to Grand Forks Air Force Base and the unsuccessful recent attempt of a Chinese company to buy land near that base. The Air Force Base said its proximity would have posed a national security risk. Well, duh, you think? You're going to have the Chinese that's got land adjacent to a major military base in the United States? I mean, how, how, how much do you have to think about that before you realize what a bad idea it is? The South Dakota governor explained that she's been following the issue of Chinese investment since she was in Congress. I recognized and saw them buying up our fertilizer companies, chemical companies, processing systems. Now they're buying our food supply so they can control us. For Nome, this is part of a larger strategy for China to assert itself as a global superpower at America's expense. She's also called for the banning of TikTok. Other Republican governors have taken similarly tough stances against China. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis committed to an aggressive stance against Chinese land purchases. Uh, we're going to prohibit CCP-linked businesses from purchasing land in the state of Florida, he said. And Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has also raised the alarm earlier this month on CNBC. What we've seen is the CCP and the Chinese government become much more aggressive about pro uh, progressing their strategy to dominate the world. He added that in Virginia, they have the Pentagon, Quantico, and Naval Station Norfolk, the largest naval base in the world. Farmland is in close proximity to all those national defense hotspots. We're not going to allow these bad actors to buy this farmland. Good for these governors. I mean, Governor McMaster, I hope he leans into this. We need governors in red states all across the country to do what the Biden administration won't do, and that's protect land from the Chinese who are obviously trying to acquire it, for, acquire it for a host of nefarious purposes, to have access to some of our national security, but also to be able to uh, control eventually food production. And, I mean, this is, I, I get it. Again, the amount of land yet is not a threat, but it's the action that is the threat, and they're going to continue it as long as they can. All right, um, I thought we'd end up the show today. There's a really interesting new song on uh, Spotify and on iTunes that immediately, when it was released, jumped to the top of the iTunes chart in terms of downloads. Um, and it's also very high on Spotify. And it's Donald J. Trump and, thir and the 36 Prison Choir. Uh, you can go to Justice For All, hashtag 36PC. The, what this is, if you want to find the song, you have to go to JP, J6PC. And it's, a, it's the, uh, 
the national anthem sung by people that are held in jail waiting for their January 6th trials with President Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in between. Here's what it sounds like. Sorry, that's not it. Here it is. comes President Trump. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. J6PC, that's justice for all, hashtag 36PC. These are folks that are being held in relation to January 6th, singing the national anthem along with President Trump, who does the Pledge of Allegiance there in the middle. So interesting, uh, to say the least. So I hope you enjoyed the show today, and I hope you will join us tomorrow for another edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Dr. Tony Bean. God bless you. Have a good day.